Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Xi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl. And in addition to co-hosting with Victor, I am a co-host of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law podcast. And today I am wearing a special Jill's pin, which is a Ukrainian flag. hope everyone who's watching on YouTube can see it. For more than two weeks, the nation has witnessed Vladimir Putin engaging in an unprovoked, unjustified war against Ukraine, an independent democratic country. Heart-wrenching videos are showing us what is happening on the ground and that there is no bottom to how bad things can get to the devastation and what Ukrainians are facing. Ukrainian mothers are shown using rifles to protect their families. Children in Ukraine are seen walking in uh, totally alone to escape the carnage. They have no food or shelter. There's no gas and electric. Um, it's really a terrible situation. And I can only hope that the images and videos that we are all being shown over the past couple of weeks will inspire us all to take action and protect democracy, both at home and abroad. Victors in my thoughts and hearts are with the people of Ukraine. I will keep wearing one of my several now Ukrainian Jill's pins until that country is safe and remains a bulwark against Russian aggression. Against the backdrop of such struggle and hardship in Ukraine, the media has been a crucial vehicle through which Americans can get information. One brave American documentary filmmaker has been killed in this conflict and we mourn his loss and thank those in his country and hopefully the Russian people to the extent that Putin hasn't blocked them who are letting us see the truth about Putin's savagery. Our guest today, MSNBC anchor and host Eamon Moyhedin, can shed light on the role the media has in covering this conflict, how much attention there should be on the fighting, the humanitarian crisis there, and how much on crises elsewhere. In addition, we'll learn more about Eamon's fascinating time in journalism and cable news. Eamon was born in Egypt and currently hosts Eamon on weekend evenings on MSNBC. Previously, Eamon anchored the weekday afternoon show, Eamon Morhedin Reports on MSNBC, worked at CNN and Al Jazeera, and was one of the first Western journalists to enter and report on the handing over and trial of the deposed president of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, for crimes against humanity, an experience that will undoubtedly prove helpful as we analyze President Putin's war crimes. Eamon has an extensive career covering news at home in the Middle East and even Ukraine. It'll be a great conversation. Thank you, Eamon, for joining us today. We are so grateful to have you on with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you again. And although iGen Politics usually spends time getting to know our guests, today I want to dive right into news from Ukraine because you covered the 2014 Russian attack on Ukraine uh, as an on-the-ground reporter. And now you're covering it as an anchor. And so I want to talk to you more about that news today. And uh, when Putin invaded Crimea in 2014, you were there. Uh, you were in Kiev and Donetsk and along the eastern Ukrainian border covering the events. So first, can you describe, I mean, it's, it's something that I've always wondered, what is it really like when you experience covering a war and this particular Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, you know, I think um, covering conflict generally is always very difficult because you see uh, the resilience of humanity and you see the best and worst of mankind. And I think that's a consistent theme that I've seen in, in all the wars that I've covered from the Middle East to, to Ukraine and elsewhere. And what was so remarkable about 2014 and, and how it relates into now is you can almost draw a straight line between what happened in 2014 until today. And it really kind of crystallizes and puts in sharp focus the miscalculation by Vladimir Putin. And what I mean by that is if you go back to 2014 and you see what the Euromaidan protests were about, this uprising of Ukrainians mm -hmm. who wanted to impose a democracy and get rid of a pro-Russian 
uh, autocrat who was governing Ukraine at the time, you can clearly see a very strong Ukrainian identity, a very young pro-democracy, pro-Western Ukrainian identity take hold in that country. And so over the course of the last eight years, as somebody who's tracked this story, who's gone back to visit and report it, it's remarkable that Vladimir Putin today in 2022 thought that he can reverse those eight years of a pro-Ukrainian, very strong nationalistic, very strong democratic identity that had taken hold. And it certainly had its problems, but this identity was so strongly forged in the span of eight years that he thought, and he still thinks that he can somehow undo that uh, by the use of military force. So I think for me, it, it is a continuation of what we've seen over the last eight years. Um, and the resilience of the Ukrainian people now is on full display. I, I think as the world is watching and covering this war in real time, everybody's just in awe with, um, with everything that the Ukrainians are doing from the leadership on down to ordinary people. It's interesting because with the advance of social media and the uh, expansion of cable networks, we are seeing it real time, which I, we didn't see the revolution of dignity real time. And I don't think there was as much attention paid to it. But I think you're right. It's so interesting that Putin did not learn a single thing. On the other hand, he did get away with taking Crimea. He annexed Crimea. So maybe do you think that emboldened him? I think two things emboldened him. I think, um, and I, and a lot of people have made this parallel, but I think the first actual event was in Syria. I think the fact that mm -hmm. he deployed his military and was able to unleash the kind of brutality and barbarism of the Russian military on the people of Aleppo and elsewhere in Syria to prop up a dictator with very little consequence on the international stage, no sanctions or severe sanctions, not this kind of isolation, made him think that there is a military calculation that he can get away with. So that was the first data point that I would point to. And then the invasion of Crimea. Yet despite Crimea happening, despite his invasion of Crimea and the occupation of it, which was not recognized by the world, he was not shunned. He, Russia was not sanctioned in the same way. You did not strip Russia away from global institutions or cultural events like the way they did or sporting events the way they've done with FIFA and elsewhere. And so the fact that he was able to get away with it, I think you're absolutely right. It emboldened him and made his calculation think that if he was able to do those two things and get away with it um, and elsewhere, I mean, you think about Georgia, you think about, you know, even other conflicts in Central Asia, um, Chechnya, you start to wonder whether or not all of these factored into his calculation and saying, I can take all of Ukraine and get away with it this time as well. Do you think there was anything particular about the timing? Why did he pick now? And also, do you think he's going to stop with Ukraine? Is Moldova next? Poland? What, what's going to happen? You know, those are really good questions. Um, in terms of the timing, I personally, you know, I don't have any insight into why he did it now. I, I mean, I relied on a lot of the assessments by the U.S. intelligence and the military who said either both the conditions in terms of the fighting terrain, um, you know, the, the frozen tundra of Ukraine made it easier. It doesn't seem like it's going easy, but it made it easier to move in. Tra uh, tanks across the tundra into Ukraine. So there was a logistics military component to it. There were people who were speculating he wanted to do it after um, uh, the Olympics in Beijing. I think the big picture question about now is why now? And I feel like Ukraine had really turned the corner. I mean, Ukraine with yeah. every subsequent president since 2014 has made clear it no longer wants to be a part of uh, a Russian sphere of influence. And and so he was really running out of time in the sense that if he felt that he can reverse this Ukrainian push to the West, um, this was the window that he was going to be able to do it. Uh, otherwise, Ukraine, after its next presidential elections, perhaps even after Zelensky, was just pushing more and more towards yeah. the West and NATO. And, and the overtures from NATO and the European Union clearly had been towards Ukraine. So I think th those are big picture macro level um, assessments that I think Vladimir Putin was taking into consideration. His window to reverse Ukraine from being pro-Western was narrowing. That's a great insight. Yeah. And, and just to follow up more on Ukraine, you know, it's consumed so much of the world over the past few weeks and how the media is covering this, I think, is crucial to public support or dismissal of what the administration is doing. So I want to get your perspective on the coverage and the role of journalists on the ground. So maybe first, can you talk about your approach to covering Ukraine now? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. I appreciate you asking. I mean, I think there's two different things. And I, as someone who has reported on conflicts on the ground for you know, almost all of my career, 15 years since 2001, before I became an anchor, I never lose sight of the important work that the reporters on the ground are doing, which is to report for us accurately what they see. But there is something that always is a little bit short-sighted about when you are looking at something so geopolitical like Ukraine by just focusing on uh, the human suffering, the toll that is happening, because that is important to understand as we are seeing. But as Jill was just asking, what is the big picture here? What is something that has happened over the span of 20 years involving Ukraine, NATO, and Russia that we don't understand? And that's what I try to bring a little bit to the reporting, which is taking a step back, trying to look at things from a 35,000 foot level, uh, and trying to analyze the, the movements and the big picture of what has happened over the span of 20 years, not just the span of these 18 days. So I think the two complement each other and we have reporters and we see unfortunately the cost that reporters are paying to bring us these stories and they're extremely important and we should not lose sight of it. And at the same time, I try to balance out the big picture stuff and, and honestly to try to ask uh, and you know provide analysis on some difficult questions that we can't lose sight of about the mistakes that we've made as a country, um, the double standards in the way that we deal with this particular crisis, how it's covered, the issue of refugees, whether there are underlying currents there. Uh, and that's, that's how I kind of see my role in this particular conflict, since I am not there on the ground reporting on the day-to-day -day, uh, war itself. That's such a good approach, and I think like so many other political issues, it requires a really solid understanding of not just current events, but also the longer history and the um, context around those events. So I'm wondering maybe on Twitter, many are saying that while covering Ukraine is necessary, the media should also spend more time covering the conflicts in the Middle East and Africa. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think of media as a zero-sum game. It doesn't mean that if we're covering Ukraine that we're not covering the Middle East or Africa. I do think there, is, there are some structural problems generally across the board in that stories in Europe always get more attention than conflicts uh, in places like Africa. I mean, look, when the Middle East was enraged with war between Libya and Syria and Yemen, uh, all of those got a lot of attention in Western media. Um, today, coincidentally, is the beginning of the is the anniversary, the beginning of the Syrian uprising, which led to the Syrian civil war. But the truth is, they definitely got a lot of attention. They are now; those conflicts are now stagnant a little bit. I mean, they're still happening, they're still suffering, there's still conflict and violence, but they have been going on for ten years, eleven years, and and even in some cases. Uh, in parts of Africa longer. So it's important to not lose sight of them. But I think what is what is jarring is to see a little bit of the double standard in the coverage, which is right now Ukraine is the center of the world's attention, rightfully so. Um, but the question that should be asked is why is the response to what is happening in Ukraine different? And I go back to some of the questions that we were just discussing. Why wasn't Russia sanctioned when they were carpet bombing Syrians? Um, why did nobody, you know, express outrage in the same way? Why didn't Europe open its borders and allow Syrian refugees and Afghan refugees to be allowed the same kind of humane, compassionate, expeditious entry into Europe the way that we're seeing happen right now with Ukraine? I, I think this is the right model. This is the right approach. So I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm saying, no, this is right. The question is, why weren't we doing something similar uh, when we saw the Syrian question. And then the harder question, and again, I want to be careful because I don't want people to perceive this as whataboutism. This is not about whataboutism. This is about learning from our own mistakes and wondering if we are also uh, making mistakes. And I can certainly talk about this, Jill. You certainly know this probably better than I do when it comes to international law and accountability. But we've worked so hard sometimes to undermine international law and the rules-based system. And now we would like to try to use the rules-based system and the international criminal court to punish somebody like Vladimir Putin. So it's sometimes we, we actually shoot ourselves in the foot because we need to use these tools when we can to bring dictators and, and oppressors like Vladimir Putin to account. But we had a president like Donald Trump who actually sanctioned the ICC because of what it did. And I think that's, those are the, the things that we sometimes have to not lose sight of and make sure we ask honestly about. So I want to follow up on that because it seems to me that when we're talking about setting things in context, the concerns me is that I'm talking about the historical context, that one of the things I'm not hearing very much 
about the international law. I'm not hearing much about really defining what is a war crime, what's the role of the ICC, what's the limitations on the power of the ICC. And uh, so what do you think? I mean, could we, could not we, <laughs> you, the media, uh, be doing more to bring about some knowledge about the International Criminal Court, about Russia's being able to veto actions because it's part of the UN, um, and all the other possibilities, the International Court of Justice. There's many tools. I'm not sure we have all the tools identified, and Victor and I are actually going to do a podcast with an international uh, war of, uh, uh, I guess, law of armed conflict expert, because I don't think there is enough of this. And I personally wanted to be more educated, so I'm hoping other people will. But do you think that's one of the missing? Oh, absolutely, and I, and I, you know, I applaud you guys for having that conversation. And it's certainly something I try to do on my show and um, putting the spotlight on it. And I think there's two parallels to draw here. Um, one, if you take a look, so the International Criminal Court, obviously, um, the way it works is you have to be a signatory to uh, the Rome Statute, which is essentially what created it. And by doing so, you give the court jurisdiction over those who are signatories to the uh, ICC. And in the ICC's case, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and the United States, the three of them are not signatories. So just right out the gate, the ICC does not have jurisdiction over any three of these countries to be able to go and investigate uh, without an invitation. Now, what has happened, uniquely enough, is that in 2014, Ukraine recognized that there were possible war crimes being committed by Russia during the invasion of Crimea. Uh, and so they invited the ICC to come in and look at these allegations. The ICC accepted, they opened an investigation. And believe it or not, that is the investigation that is currently being used based on the initial invitation of the Ukrainian government from 2014 mm -hmm to incorporate all the events of 2022. But here's the challenge. We have worked to undermine the ICC. And as I mentioned, Donald Trump sanctioned members of the ICC uh, when he was the president of that. Because the ICC is, as any court should, should look at a perpetrator or a possible um, you know, committer of violence or a violation of law without any discrimination or without any favor. So it means, yes, we would have to look at the U.S. and whether or not the United States committed war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. We would have to look at whether Russia committed war crimes, and we would have to look at whether Ukraine committed any violations in eastern parts of the country. But the United States did not want to give up any of its sovereignty, and it always believed that it could hold its own soldiers and officers accountable for any war crimes. And we just simply know that that's not the case. I mean, all you have to do is look at the torture of people in Guantanamo Bay and Iraq and Abu Ghraib. There hasn't ever been, at least certainly not in, in Guantanamo Bay, there's never been one CIA officer or interrogator who has been held accountable for that torture program. And so I think going back to Jill's point, when you talk about the International Criminal Court and international rules, there is no way to strengthen them without being a part of them. And so you can't have it both ways. We're like, we don't want to be a part of the international court or international rules. Uh, system, but we want them to prosecute people like Vladimir Putin and not look at us or any of our own wrongdoing. And to your point, Jill, again, really quickly, when you look at the United Nations, um, and again, this is not a whataboutism, but it is, a, it, it is an example of how we have to be honest with ourselves as to whether the UN Security Council is working. There are two countries in the last 20 years on the Security Council who invaded another country based on a pretext of false information and in their own national security interests. In 2003, the United States went to the UN. They said, yeah. Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. We knew that to be false. We know that it is false now. And they convinced the world that they're doing this invasion without any international authorization to do so. And Russia is now doing the same. They invaded Ukraine on a pretext that it is for their national security and based on you know false lies of their own interests. And in both of these cases, these are two countries that can block any meaningful condemnation or sanctions at the United Nations level because they're both powers on the Security Council. Well, do you think that the U.S. knew when Colin Powell instruction, do you think he actually lied or that he was misled, misunderstood the uh, surveillance 
pictures uh, because that would be very different than Russia now saying, we're helping the Ukrainians, we're going to denazify the government, which is led by a Jewish president. Hard to believe they actually believe that they have to denazify the country or that it's in their national security interest that there's any threat posed by Ukraine. So it seems to me there might be some difference there. Completely different in terms of the um, procedures of how they make decisions. I mean, at the end of the day, we think of ourselves as a democracy where there is debate and there's a robust challenging of uh, evidence. I haven't been privy to any of the meetings of what Colin Powell was told and what he wasn't told and how much he was skeptical of the intelligence that was presented to him. And look, 2020 is hindsight. Sorry, you know, when you look back at these things, it's always perfect, right? <laughs> hindsight is 2020. But but what I the point I want to say is we know now that there was enough skepticism back in 2003, but we were so caught up in the post 9-11 world and just the paranoia that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. But if you really looked at what was emerging um, around the time that the American administration and specifically people like Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz and others were pushing about Iraq, it was clear that the evidence was not strong enough um, to lead to an invasion and ultimate occupation and the killing of hundreds of thousands of people. So in my opinion right now, I'm not saying that what Russia is doing is similar. I'm saying about the rules-based system, the international rules-based yeah. system cannot be strengthened if the two major superpowers in the world are undermining and violating them um, without any consequence. And I think for me, that's, the, that's really the most important thing. I mean, we, there are so many other examples of, you know, of countries engaged in human rights abuses that go unpunished. So it's not to single them out, it's just to draw the parallels of how in order for international law to work and to have strong international institutions that hold people accountable, you have to treat them equally across the board, irrespective of who has a veto power and who doesn't. So let me go to a, a different part of the coverage of <laughs> my dog, um, a, a different part of the coverage of the war. And that is the risk to the reporters on the ground. Um, you certainly face that. Uh, sadly, we now know that at least one journalist, a documentarian, has been killed in action, uh, Brent Renault, and a Fox reporter has been seriously injured and is hospitalized. And I suspect there will be more because Russia is uh, sending attacks right into places where the reporters are. They're attacking apartment buildings. That's not my yeah, dog. Yeah, sorry, I apologize. That's my dog. <laughs> uh, oh, good. I'm glad. He's answering mine. I love it. Uh, maybe we can introduce them. They'll be friends. Um, anyway, so how do you deal with that when you're in that situation? I mean, when you have bombs exploding behind you, when you have innocent civilians fleeing, um, let's talk about the bombs first and how the, the physical danger and how you deal with that. So, you know, I think that in the life of every journalist who covers conflict zone, there comes conflict zones, there comes a moment um, and it's usually just a once in a lifetime or at least once in a generation type of self-reflection where you say, is what I am doing worth risking my life? And young journalists certainly ask that question when they start because they believe that what they're doing is important. And they probably don't necessarily revisit that question until they have like another monumental moment in their life, like starting a family and have other responsibilities and, and things change. And so for me, you know, as a young reporter, when I was uh, 22, 23, going to Iraq for the first time, I went to Iraq as a freelancer, um, very similar to what people are doing now. And I was committed to the idea that what I was doing as a reporter, as a producer covering conflict and war was that it was important for people to see it. And I felt that I had a certain context and perspective as being someone from the region that could help explain that to an American audience at the time. And I didn't revisit the issue of whether or not I wanted to be committed to being a war reporter or a conflict reporter until I had children of my own and I started weighing the risks of like, do I want to risk my life for that? And so I never lose sight of how dangerous it is for the reporters there on the ground. And as you mentioned, we've already gotten tragic reports of reporters being killed um, in Ukraine, as we saw in Syria, as we saw in Libya, because these reporters fundamentally believe that what they are doing is 
beyond essential, that it is a lifeline to democracies to see what is happening on the ground and for humanity to be able to see these images. Um, how people operate, I think, is very, it's different from organization to organization. You know, various organizations, big organizations, and this is something that always needs attention, massive media organizations that have the resources to provide security, flak jackets, helmets, real-time data about the conflict, um, are important. And I'm fortunate enough to work for an organization like that. But as I mentioned, I started out as a freelancer in Iraq, where I know what the costs of being a young reporter who wants to see this, wants to document it, wants to write about it, without the backing of a massive major news organization to be able to provide some of these resources. So I think we collectively as a society should never lose sight uh, of the importance of that. And that's why I think it's so disheartening sometimes when you hear uh, politicians talking about the fake news media and talking about uh, trying to uh, just brandish journalists as enemy of the state and calling for them to be beaten and arrested. It, it's really disheartening to see on one hand politicians say that and then to see these young reporters who are literally risking their lives to try and bring you images and stories about the suffering and what's happening on the other side uh, of the planet. I, I completely agree with you about the importance of this, and I'm proud that there are people willing to risk their lives to make uh, democracy safer by letting us know the facts. Um, from a different perspective, though, while you're on the ground, you're seeing humanitarian suffering like never before. We're seeing people starving, the water cut off, the heat, the gas, uh, electricity, and the, People like from MSNBC are there with lots of resources. How, how do you deal with the fact that you have food and electric and backup stuff? Is there ever a time when you go like, I really want to give my food to this starving person? Or how, how do you take that emotion out of it? Uh, I mean, that, that is such a good question, and it, it, it is absolutely um, heartbreaking. And um, it, is, it is definitely one of the hardest moments of being a reporter where you know that at the end of the day, um, because of the privilege you have, depending on what country you come from and the resources you have, you can easily get out of uh, that situation. And I, I just think of my own personal experience, again, on the ground in a place like Gaza, um, I covered several conflicts there, and I knew because I was an American citizen working for an American organization that I can literally pick up and leave the very next day with my passport out of the border and nobody could stop me. And I would think of the two million people who were stuck in Gaza who couldn't escape the shelling or the bombing or the fighting, and they were stuck there. In addition to all of the other things that you talked about, the logistics, we had generators, we had, um, you know money that we could use to buy food and access to bringing equipment in. So it is definitely one of the most challenging parts, but I think the most important thing as a reporter is to be humble um, and to not lose sight of why you are there and see how you can help the people there with your reporting, which is the most important thing. If you can show the world uh, what Ukrainians are experiencing now in real time, you can help mobilize the world in a humanitarian way. And I think that that is the power of journalism. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the way this conflict has played out, reporters documenting the suffering and the needs of the people in Ukraine as they cross the border, it mobilized people in this country to donate money. You've seen prominent organizations and, and chefs like Jose Andras and World Central Kitchen pack up and go to the front lines to provide meals to the people who are crossing the border. So I think as a journalist, you try to process that your immediate role, even if I was to give a bottle of water to one Ukrainian family, it's gonna help them. But what could also help them is by showing what they're going through to the world, to mobilize the world, to galvanize the world mm -hmm. into action, into saying we have to find a way to either help them or stop this war. And I think that's the balance that you try to strike. But it is definitely one of the moral dilemmas of covering conflict is, um, is not losing sight of the privilege that you have as a reporter in an organization that has resources while at the same time documenting the suffering uh, of people and, and making sure that you stay grounded um, with that reality. That makes sense. So one last question before I turn it back to Victor is, um, in addition to the humanitarian emotional toll, the physical risk of bombs, 
Um, there's now a new penalty in Russia, which is a 15-year sentence for telling the truth. If you call it a war, that's considered not part of the Russian story, and so you can go to jail. And there, there was a video, which MSNBC has now confirmed, of a staff person from one of the Russian television stations walking behind the newscaster with a sign that said, stop the war, don't believe the lies, this is all propaganda. And I believe the reports are that she has been arrested and will be in jail for 15 years, no doubt, probably without a trial. Um, how do you deal with that kind of additional risk? If you were reporting from Russia instead of from Ukraine, what would you do? I mean, do you think they would arrest an American reporter in Russia reporting on what's happening? You know, that's a that's a very good question, and I don't have insight into it. And I genuinely mean that. I, I think in this particular case, I think those are two different components. One is the Russian uh, employee at the Russia One channel, uh, Marina, I believe is her first name. Yeah. And she was an editor at that news organization. And I think, I think what we should be clear about is what she did was an act of uh, courage, and it was an act yes. of defiance, and it was certainly... Uh, it wasn't reporting in the sense, but it was an act of protest. And that's the most important thing in this, is that her act of protest is what is raising the uh, awareness to people into the country to say, hey, mm -hmm. what you're listening, what you're hearing, what you're seeing is not the truth. Put that aside for a moment, because as we see, that is the result of living in a country that is authoritarian, um, that doesn't allow freedom of speech, that doesn't allow protest. Because if she had the ability to protest safely outside of her workplace, then that act would not necessarily be as significant. But it is. So the other part to your question is about the reporters that are there. And there is no doubt that Russia right now doesn't care about the information war uh, space or world outside of Russia. It cares domestically about what it's doing. So to some extent, what they care about is not what is being reported about Russia to the outside world, but what Russians are seeing. And so to that point, mm -hmm. American journalists that are reporting there are reporting back to an outside uh, audience, an audience in America, an audience in uh, the Western world. And I don't think Russia is part as concerned about that as they are concerned about what Russians domestically are seeing. It is still very dangerous. We know that the Russian government has the ability to arrest uh, people. Um, I don't know that they have gone so far as to arresting any Western journalists that are operating there for any uh, American or European news journalists. But I also would not rule out that if they get desperate and they are concerned about the messages and what is coming back into Russia, that they could take uh, similar actions as we've seen elsewhere. So let's maybe change the subject a bit um, for a moment to domestic politics. You've covered January 6th, and you also have a podcast based on a call you received from your high school classmate whose sister-in-law died in that attack. Um, let's focus on this story specifically. Her name is Roseanne. What did Roseanne do, and what drew Roseanne to Trump, do you think? Yeah, I mean, this was a, a story that I honestly— it kind of fell in my lap. Um, January the 6th, uh, as we all saw, the insurrection that happened was a very dark day in, in American history and American democracy. And um, I think a few days after January the 6th, I got a Facebook post from an old high school friend of mine who said, you've probably heard the news. Um, Roseanne Boyland, his sister-in-law, was one of the people who participated and died uh, in the insurrection on the Capitol on January the 6th. Do you want to hear her story? And I was immediately uh, shocked by a word that he used in his message to me, which was the family believed that Roseanne was radicalized in a span of very few short months, six months. So that was the word that they used, radicalized. And it, it immediately, it was very jarring for me because I, again, had spent so much time overseas covering the rise of ISIS, uh, terrorist attacks in Iraq and elsewhere, that I was very familiar with the idea of radicalism and radicalization. And to hear it being used in the context of January the 6th was surprising. Um, and I immediately replied back saying, yes, I would love to. And I, I knew the family. I, knew, I certainly knew Justin, who is her brother-in-law. So I went down there. I got to know the family. I reconnected with, uh, with Justin. And over the span of a year, my producer and I and our team put together this podcast that really examined how this woman who was very apolitical, had never voted in her life, had actually gone from being, I would say, um, someone who was down on her luck, 
uh, who's definitely had challenges in her life, um, who suffered in her life, to becoming this ardent QAnon believer and supporter of Donald Trump, thinking that if I overthrew American democracy, I was somehow fulfilling um, a larger picture of saving our country. And that transformation in the span of six months is what the focus of the podcast was and, and how she was ultimately led down this path of disinformation uh, and demagoguery. What do you think Roseanne's story says about the insurrectionists who participated on January 6th? I think it says that the message and the appeal um, and the intersection of you know this triangulation is very, very broad in this country. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have, this is my experience of reporting on radicalism overseas. It it happens in this uh, triangulation of three things, destitution, disinformation, and demagoguery. And what we saw in the United States, which was unique, and again, I make this comparison to what I'd seen overseas, people have hardships in their life. They're destitute. And in the case of Roseanne, she struggled with uh, substance abuse. She uh, suffered an abusive relationship. She struggled to have uh, a job. She was constantly in trouble with the law. And she was bombarded. So there was that destitution. She was bombarded with this disinformation of um, the election was stolen, that our country is, everything in our country is the fault of somebody else. And her destitution was because of X, Y, and Z. And what was unique in America that I think America did not have on a, on a national level and certainly not at such a powerful position as a president was a demagogue. You had Donald Trump emerge on the scene who said, your problems, I alone can fix them. If you follow me, we can save our country. If I shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, my followers won't care. And so it was this, this transformation of taking a person who was destitute, bombarding them with disinformation about the problems in our society and our country, and then following a leader who says, if you walk with me to January 6th, if we stop this election, we can save our country. We can give your life that has not had much purpose for the last several years a newfound purpose. We can, as QAnon believers like to say, save the children, because at the end of the day, they believe in this conspiracy that children are being sexually abused and trafficked by the elite. And so when you put all those together, it was a very dangerous recipe and a dangerous cocktail that I think is what made you know, January 6th turn out to be what it is. I'm not saying everybody who was there is a QAnon believer, but everybody who was there believed that the election was stolen and believed that what, by overthrowing our democracy or by stopping this election, they were doing something in the best interests of the country. And that is what was so dangerous about the rhetoric that was coming out of uh, people like Donald Trump and his uh, sycophants who were saying, we must overthrow our election in order to save our country. And it must have been so chilling and disturbing to know that this parallels with what you experienced abroad. And I'm wondering, what was your main takeaway from covering that story? And does that inform how you cover Trump supporters writ large on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, the challenge is um, the challenge. The challenge is that you can't you can't look at it from the perspective of um you know, comparisons. I, I, that, one of the things that I think that is hard in all of this is trying to avoid comparing what you saw on January the 6th to the broader ailments in our society. I think January the 6th was a very specific result of a movement of disinformation and violence that was at its core anti-democratic. Now, the, the challenge is that you have somebody who is, and somebody like Trump and his supporters, who are now taking the grievances of people all across the country, some of them legitimate grievances, and morphing that into being an anti-democratic movement. And that becomes an extremely dangerous Uh, situation for our country, because not only are you contending with legitimate grievances, but you also have to contend with an anti-democratic movement that the FBI and others are warning could potentially become violent. And and as people have testified in Senate hearings repeatedly and, and congressional hearings, the biggest threat that we are facing right now is the domestic threat, is this domestic convergence of nationalism and uh, and violence that could potentially threaten uh, our democracy, not only on a federal level or a national level, but we're seeing that then get morphed with the political uh, party 
particularly Republicans on a state level, that are introducing laws that make it harder to vote, make it harder to be a functioning democracy, potentially overthrowing the results of an election. And it's a very, very, very dangerous uh, moment in our country's history. Can we go back to um, something that we mentioned a little earlier about Fox? And there are two issues that I want to raise. One, let's relate to coverage of Ukraine um, and Tucker Carlson basically spewing Russian propaganda and being played on Russian television. Um, But he's not the only one. Apparently, uh, Jennifer Griffin, who was a Pentagon reporter, had to correct anchors Hannity and some others on air for spreading Russian propaganda. And so I'm just wondering, what do we do to get facts to the viewers of Fox News about what's happening so that they don't, as they are now saying, well, it's really Russia is saving us from the deep state and they're saving the Ukrainians. This is very disturbing to me that Americans believe that, but that's what they're hearing. And if their only source is Fox. So what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're asking like a million dollar question, which is how do we fundamentally make sure that American people are well informed? And this is the challenge that we have in a free society, certainly one where there is a free marketplace of ideas and free marketplace (laughs) of um, of information. Um, All that, you know, and, and there's there's something good to be said about it. And there's something critical of it, which is, you know, we live in a media environment that is ratings based and it's, um, you know, based, it's a commercially incentivized uh, platform. And so I am not necessarily sure that the people at Fox are always thinking about um, what is right and wrong in terms of information. I think they're looking at what rates and what doesn't rate. And that could be applied across the board generally to all broadcast news. Um, The challenge is how do you make sure that the people in these positions of great responsibility and great power strike the right balance between the information um, that is correct and verifiable and truthful, and at the same time, holding people in power responsible for what they do. So I think it really comes down to an individual level. What I would say, and this is not to try to Um, diminish or marginalize any one network over the other, but it is to say you have to look at the totality of how Americans consume information. This has always been one of the the hardest things because I feel that one of the, the challenges in the United States is that America and Americans, they have access to so much information. I mean, they have the ability to find out within seconds about an explosion in Ukraine or an attack in Iraq or a missile that landed or North Koreans firing a missile within seconds of it happening. But how many Americans are willing to understand why that event happened? And I think a lot of that has to also be the responsibility of consumers of news. It can't just simply be that you sit at home and say, I'm going to watch Fox because that is all, or MSNBC or CNN, because that is all I know how to watch and be lazy about it. We, our our citizenry is evolving. Our democracy is evolving. Our citizenry requires more participation. So if you are just saying, I'm going to sit and watch Fox News all day, that That is on you. There is no excuse to say, I want to find out a variety of news information uh, sources to be able to understand better what is happening. And if you don't want to understand it, it says more about you than it says about the people at Fox who are running a business and are trying to put out a product that they think is going to appeal to a mass audience. That's on them for sure. But more importantly, you as a citizen have the responsibility and the requirement to say, okay, I'll listen to Fox News, but I'll also watch X, Y, and Z. I can now follow Ukrainian reporters on the ground. So if I don't even want to listen from, you know, American uh, reporters or see how they're covering it, there are English language websites in Ukraine that are documenting this in real time. You can actually follow people, ordinary citizen who are engaged in citizen journalism that are providing real time information about what is happening on the ground with their own social media accounts and what have you. So I I just, I'm I'm a person who, when people criticize the media, I accept that criticism. We have a lot to learn. We have a lot to do better. But I am also a person who says, it's also on the citizens. If you are engaged in your democracy and you care about your democracy, you also have a responsibility to make sure that you're diversifying your news sources and not just relying on one. 
Victor and I have long been proponents of critical thinking skills being developed in schools and encouraging people to seek multiple sources of information and to use their critical thinking to determine which is facts, because we believe people are entitled to their own opinions, but to quote a famous politician, they aren't entitled to their own I facts. I completely agree. And there are only one set of facts. So um, we, we have to get to that. And I, I think, you know, on the whole, people are better off watching MSNBC and CNN for factual accounts. I am encouraged we had Essie Cup as a guest um, this week, and from her, you know, I'm, I'm so worried about Fox and misleading yeah. Americans. And she said, even though they have such high ratings, it's really a teeny percentage of Americans who actually get yeah. their news from Fox. A smaller percent who get it from CNN and MSNBC, but still, it's, it's not where most people are getting their news. So that's sort of a relief. Unfortunately, a lot of them are getting it from fake news on <laughs> social media, so I'm not sure that 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 helps. But um, before we run out of time, um, and, and I know we wanted to go into your background, which is quite amazing. Um, and just let me at least summarize it so that people will maybe know more about you. Um, you were born in Egypt to an Egyptian father and a Palestinian mother. You moved to Georgia at the age of five, um, so I'm not sure if you, do you remember Egypt at all? Yeah, actually, it, just a, a slight correction on that. So it, we, yes, I was born in Egypt, and at the age of five, we first moved to Detroit, Michigan. Um, oh, Detroit, and so, okay. Yeah, for our, first, our first entry point into the United States was Detroit, Michigan. So I grew up as wow. a Detroit Lions, Detroit Red Wings, Detroit Pistons fans in the 80s. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I unfortunately watched the Chicago Bulls beat the Pistons in the 80s <laughs> for a long time. Um, but yeah, exactly. But then I ultimately, uh, my parents moved. Uh, moved to Georgia and I went to high school in Georgia. So, um, okay. and then after you about the high uh, school, yeah, so I was in high school in Georgia and that's how, that's my connection to Georgia. And then I went to university in Washington DC at American university. Um, and you know, th as soon as I was done with college, I started working as a journalist and I moved uh, overseas because unfortunately when I was in college, nine 11 happened and it changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. Well, it's, you mentioned your sports affiliations, but you also yeah. <laughs> have an older brother who was a star of the um, Atlanta Silverbacks, a soccer star. He, he was, played yeah. professional <laughs> soccer. He's now a neurosurgeon. Your father um, is a CPA in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, my father was a CPA yeah. too. And so I'm, how, how did you get this interest in journalism? How did you decide to switch from yeah, I mean, so it was a, um, first of all, yeah, my brother, my parents like to joke that, but my brother has a PhD and an MD, so he's a neurobiologist as well as a neurosurgeon, and so my parents like to joke that, you know, we have two doctors in the family, but they're both, both degrees are with my brother. Well, you have a master's <laughs> um, degree, let's um, not undermine I, that. I, I, <laughs> I do, but you know, when you're an immigrant <laughs> family, especially from the Middle East, there's a, the threshold is not about degrees as much as it is about doctors, engineers, and lawyers, which unfortunately I was not one of them. So, um, but I think now they definitely take a little bit of pride in being able to see me on TV. But, you know, it, it's, um, I grew up going back and forth between the Middle East and the United States, uh, certainly summers and what have you and family. And so I always kind of saw myself, even, even as a young child, as a reporter where I'd, I oh. would make home videos explaining and making fun of wow. um, things both in the U.S. to my family in the Middle East and in the, in the Middle East to my friends back here in the U.S. And so I was constantly dealing with this kind of cross-cultural communication that I had to uh, constantly explain. And, you know, try explaining the Electoral College <laughs> and how democracy works <laughs> to people in the Middle East who don't even, like, you know, don't oh, even gosh. have democracy. And then you're trying to yeah. say, but yes, the majority of the people can vote for one person, but he doesn't get to be the president. So, <laughs> so... That's really where it started. Um, you know, on a personal level, I love to travel. I love to see the world. And when I went to school at American University, it was in large part because I wanted to try to be a diplomat. Um, I was going to take the state, the Foreign Service exam, the Foreign Service Officers exam. And uh, in my final year in college in 2001, 9-11 happened. And I was actually interning at NBC News, where I am now. 
Um, very entry-level job. It was a great experience, but I didn't think it was going to be a career. What happened was after 9-11, they didn't have any producers who spoke Arabic. And so I was kind of plucked out of being an intern or a desk assistant and thrown into the mix of investigative reporting into 9-11 using wow. my Arabic, helping producers with translation work and documentation and mostly in that space. And then the following year, of course, you probably recall President Bush gave his axis of evil speech at the UN and all sites started focusing on Iraq. And I think news organizations at that time started looking for Arab American journalists and people who knew the region, people who spoke the language to beef up their coverage and their resources. And I went to Iraq as a freelancer and luckily landed with CNN and worked as a freelance producer for CNN for the better part of three or four years. So that's how my career in journalism started, between 9-11 as a desk assistant for NBC and then a producer for CNN in Iraq, and then ultimately as a uh, correspondent reporter for Al Jazeera English before moving over to NBC in 2011 as a correspondent based in the Middle East. So, and I should point out, all joking aside, that your master's degrees really are in relevant subjects to what you are now covering because you were very much focused on the European Union and on international. Um, and you did, a, uh, if I can see it, it, the news media paradigm in the war on terrorism. So you really yeah. were involved in looking at things that matter today a lot. Um, and I think with that, Victor has a last, last question. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we talked right before going on air, you mentioned that you studied abroad in Brussels. We talked about your career in journalism. Um, for college students like me or for anyone who might be interested in going into journalism, um, what advice do you have for them based off of your really just remarkable career? No, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I think there's a few things I would say. One, um, we tend to think of like journalism as a field that you have to study. And yes, that is true to some extent, but I think the more important thing is to carve out for yourself an area of interest or an area of expertise that you can marry to the journalism. And so in my case, you know, I loved uh, the Middle East. It's obviously my, you know, ancestral homeland, if you will. So I, I knew that part of the world. And so I wanted to be, and also the geopolitics of the era was really mm -hmm. focused on the Middle East. And so what I would say to young people is if you want to study journalism, marry it with something that you uh, are passionate about, whether it is literature or theater or travel or business or sports. You can be a sports journalist. You can be a business reporter. If you are, if you like health, you can now, as we've seen, health reporting. We, we have such a shortage in this country of good qualified medical reporters. It's getting better, but the COVID pandemic exposed for us a deficit in how we have good scientific-based reporters who can understand and distill very complex scientific research in a way that ordinary citizens can understand them. So whatever your interest, your passions are as a young uh, student, take that and make that the core of what it is that you want to be a reporter about. Uh, it's, it's not sufficient, I think, these days to simply say, I want to be a journalist, whatever comes my way. Um, is going to make my career. You need to carve out for yourself a niche, an area of expertise, something that's going to differentiate you, and more importantly, something that you're passionate about mm. that you can ultimately build a career around um, uh, successfully over the course of your, uh, of your life. It's really, really interesting and such great advice. And um, Eamon, we thank you for being on this podcast with us today. We are so grateful. My pleasure, guys. I loved our conversation. Me too. Me too. It's an honor to, uh, to answer some of your questions and to uh, share my thoughts with you. Real privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Eamon. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And you'll tune in next week for another episode of iGen Politics. We're on YouTube, so be sure to subscribe and like to us there. And then also we're on Apple Podcasts, so follow us there or wherever you follow your podcasts and leave us a five-star review and rating. It helps others to find us. If you do give us a good review, we'd appreciate it. And we look forward to having you join us again next week.